Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. False accusations that ruin careers. It's a real problem. Now the head of a border patrol union says this has happened to a few agents and that President Biden hasn't apologized. A new poll finds a majority of Democrats don't want Biden to run again in 2024. What are their top concerns and what are some Americans telling us? Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon faces criminal charges for dodging the J6 committee. He's now showing some compromise, willing to testify, yet the judge isn't giving Bannon the relief he requested. The New York City bodega worker who fatally stabbed a man who attacked him apologizes to the family of the deceased. Also, new video shows that the bodega worker was stabbed by a third person during the deadly confrontation. Tens of thousands of protesters seized Sri Lanka's capital buildings, while farmers in Poland and Italy joined the Netherlands in mass European protests, and officials warn of an unprecedented global hunger crisis. We look at a common thread between them. Tennis great Novak Djokovic, fresh off his fourth straight Wimbledon title, will not play in next month's U.S. Open because he's unvaccinated against COVID. We ask a medical doctor to weigh in. Some Border Patrol agents are dealing with the ramifications of being falsely accused of whipping migrants at the southern border. The head of their union says the agents' careers are ruined. Here's the story. Brandon Judd is the president of the National Border Patrol Council. He told the Epoch Times that President Biden ruined the careers of some Border Patrol agents by falsely accusing them of whipping illegal immigrants at the southern border while on horseback. Last fall, media outlets across the nation reported that some agents had assaulted migrants at the Rio Grande in Texas. President Biden at the time commented on the incident, criticizing the agents. It's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now and there will be consequences. But an internal review released last week says the agents didn't act unlawfully. Chris Magnus is the commissioner for U.S. Customs and Border Protection. OPR found no evidence Border Patrol agents involved in this incident struck any person with their reins intentionally or otherwise. The agents were placed on administrative duty after the widespread coverage of the alleged whipping. Four agents are now facing disciplinary charges for allegedly using force to drive migrants back into the Rio Grande River, even though they were on U.S. soil. Judd criticizes those allegations. He says investigators had no choice but to find some sort of fault because of the quick condemnation from President Biden and other officials. He told the Epoch Times, the fault that they found is some of the flimsiest I've ever seen in my 25-year career. In seeing disciplinary proposals time and time again, I have never seen a more flimsy proposal. He added that the president hasn't apologized and he doesn't expect him to. We reached out to the White House for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. After being criminally charged for refusing to testify to the J6 committee, former White House advisor Steve Bannon is showing some compromise. Despite this, the judge isn't giving him a break from his criminal trial. Bannon wanted the trial to be delayed, but the judge denied his request. This means he's still scheduled to go on trial next week, even though Bannon says he's willing to testify to the January 6th committee. 
According to a letter from his lawyer, Bannon would prefer to testify publicly. His lawyers had previously said he wouldn't respond to the committee's subpoena because of Trump's executive privilege. That was until Trump told Bannon he would waive that privilege. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, a member of the J6 committee, suggested on CNN that the panel won't have Bannon testify in public. And an update to a story we reported on last week. A former scientist at the University of Texas signed a potentially illegal agreement with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now the university has gotten back to us explaining their point of view. A memorandum of understanding stated that both parties, the Wuhan Institute and the University of Texas, could request that all records, such as files and documents, be destroyed without backup. Congressman Chip Roy said that this violates state and federal laws that require the retention of records. In a statement to NTD, the university acknowledges that they signed a document with a poorly drafted confidentiality provision that was in potential conflict with the law. They say they terminated the agreement after they found out about the provision and that they confirmed no documents have been destroyed. The statement also says that the university is disappointed in the Chinese regime's lack of transparency and cooperation regarding investigation into the origins of the CCP virus. And they say there was no collaboration with Chinese scientists in virus research. And President Biden has said he wants to run again in 2024, but a new poll today finds his popularity dwindling, even among Democrats. Here's NTD's Iris Tao with the details. A bleaker future for a second Biden term. Over two-thirds of Democratic voters want the party to pick a candidate other than Joe Biden in 2024, while only 13 percent of Americans say the country is on the right track. That's according to a New York Times and Siena College poll released on Monday, which describes Biden hemorrhaging support as his approval rating continues to dip. The White House has consistently said Biden, who will be 82 in 2024, intends to run again. And among Democratic voters surveyed who said they would want someone else, about one-third listed Biden's age as their main reason, while another third cited his job performance. And we hear from a few Americans about what they think of the president and about the current state of the country. Hey, we, you know, we have to give him a chance. Quincy Scott, a Virginia resident who describes himself as a lifelong Democrat, tells me he would vote for Biden again if he's the Democratic candidate. I do believe in Joe Biden. I do believe that Joe Biden inherited such a bad presidency. I believe that Joe Biden, you know, is, is, is a good man. But others say the opposite. I don't believe he was the man for the job at the beginning. Carrie Brown, a Republican from Pennsylvania, blames Biden for high prices. I think our economy is in dire needs. Um, I believe just uh, everything he has switched, he's just everything he has turned around has been to the negative. Meanwhile, do you think our country is on the right track? No, I don't think our country is on, is, is on the right track. You know, we're paying more for gas um, than, I, than I have ever seen in my lifetime. While Scott says he doesn't blame Biden for it, the over 800 respondents to the survey listed economy and inflation as the most important issues facing the country. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And over in New York City, the bodega worker who fatally stabbed a man last week is apologizing to the family of the deceased. Jose Alba told the New York Post that he was in shock and he didn't know what to do or what to say. 
The bodega worker claims he acted in self-defense when he fatally stabbed ex-con Austin Simon, who came into the shop and attacked him. Alba says he's very sad over the whole ordeal. A new video shows that Alba was stabbed too. Simon's girlfriend attacked him with a knife in an alleged attempt to help her boyfriend. A group of bodega owners is reportedly scheduled to meet with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg tomorrow in an attempt to have the charges dropped. And in Sri Lanka, the parliament today said it would elect a new president next week after protesters stormed the residences of the current president and prime minister. They have both offered to quit amid an economic meltdown that follows, among other troubles, a previous nationwide ban on synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Meanwhile, protests are spreading in Europe by farmers who fear losing their land and their livelihoods, in part a response to government plans to rein in nitrogen, policies that seem to be taking root in countries around the world. And where is it leading? One outcome so far has been increased food shortages, impacted also by pandemic supply chain issues and Russia's war in Ukraine. Here to look directly at the issues and many of the factors involved, we have senior investigative journalist Joshua Phillip from the Epic Times. He also hosts the Epic Times program Crossroads, and I spoke with him earlier today. Joshua Phillip, welcome. Hey, pleasure being here. You described a looming global food crisis, and you've been investigating this topic in quite some depth. Could you explain why you think it's imminent? Well, right now you have restrictions getting in place in many countries. The United Nations itself has been warning openly that we're facing a global food crisis. They're saying mass starvation. And instead of trying to fix the problem, they're making it worse. They're putting restrictions on nitrates, such as in uh, like the Netherlands right now. They're talking about additional restrictions in New Zealand and Canada. And so the very problem they're saying is causing a food shortage. Rather than fix it, they're making it worse. And you've described this food crisis as intentionally manufactured. What makes you think it's intentional? Well... Let's put it this way. So right now they're saying that there's going to be a food crisis based on a few different factors. One of the big ones being the war with Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine being the breadbasket of the world, especially to Africa, a lot of countries in Latin America. That is now being lost because not only of the burning of uh, fields, not only because farmers can't farm like they used to, as you'd expect during a war, uh, but also because of some of the blockades set up. Now, in addition to that, other countries, the Netherlands, second largest food producer in the world, food producer in the world, or uh, exporter in the world, now facing restrictions are going to shut down farms. Now, you take this and multiply it across the different countries that have used similar policies, not to mention other issues countries are facing from floods, from COVID, from uh, shipping crisis, shutting things down. Uh, you're looking at a real big crisis. Now, given that crisis we're all facing, Again, rather than fixing it, countries like the Netherlands right now, like Canada is trying to do right now, like American shipping companies are doing it right now, rather than fix the problem, they're implementing policies that are going to make it worse because they're restricting fertilizers, they're restricting uh, transportation of fertilizers, and they're going after farmers. And what do you think would fix the problem? Uh, what would fix the problem, I believe, would be to, I'd say, reduce the pressure on farmers rather than make their lives harder. If we're facing a global food crisis, what you need is more farming, not less farming. And the policies they're putting in place mean less farming. Not only that, but they should be, for example, making sure that shipments work properly, uh, making it so train companies in the, in the United States cannot restrict the shipment of fertilizers. 
they should be making it so fertilizers can be used really freely, at least during this time of crisis, at least for the next two years, as long as, again, the breadbasket of a lot of Latin America and a lot of Africa, Ukraine, uh, is able to produce again normally until at least that happens. They should be helping farmers, not harming and restricting farmers. You've described what's happening in Sri Lanka as the canary in the coal mine. Could you explain more about what's happening there? Well, a couple of years ago, Sri Lanka put, in, put into place policies that mirror what is now being done in a lot of other countries. Uh, one example would be Canada trying to put restrictions on uh, what they call chemical fertilizers, uh, like what they're doing in New Zealand with restrictions on chemical fertilizers, trying to do, they're not fully through yet. Uh, in Sri Lanka, they wanted to go purely organic, which great, I love organic food. I, I eat organic food typically as well, I love it. The problem is you can't transition from one day to the next and expect the soil to be able to handle it. You also can't expect to get enough supplies to be able to handle it. And what happens, they had a huge crop failure, massive crop failure, and they became reliant on imports from other countries. Now that had a ripple effect through the economy. And we're seeing now that Sri Lanka has become, has become a failed state. They just had a huge raid, a huge mass protest in the presidential palace. The prime minister fled by boat. And right now the economy is collapsing and people are, they don't have enough food to feed themselves because of the same policies implemented there a couple years ago that countries in other parts of the world are now beginning to implement. And how could what's happening in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka impact the U.S.? Well, the United States typically would be okay in the face of a famine. The United States is pretty insulated. We're, we're a very unique country in terms of our ability to take care of ourselves without really needing much of the world. The problem we have in the United States, though, is one, we're in a globalized market. And so there's not restrictions on food leaving the United States to other countries, meaning that other countries that they're facing food crisis and rising food prices, we are going to face food crisis and rising food prices unless there are restrictions on exports, none of which is happening. The other big thing in the U.S. is the shipping crisis. Uh, rising gas prices, rising cost of shipping, uh, different problems, for example, with diesel engines and the ability to move food around. In addition to that, we also have a lot of train issues as well, right? Because again, the shipping crisis is affecting the trains. And there are restrictions such as companies not transporting uh, fertilizers. And so while the U.S. would not normally be facing a crisis, we are facing a crisis because, again, of these policies. As you mentioned, many countries around the world are restricting nitrogen. And many of them have said that it's in the name of trying to tackle global warming or climate change. Could you speak to that a little? Yeah, so one of the big arguments with nitrates is that it's an environmental problem. Actually, the restrictions on nitrates began really around 2006 to 2008. Um, 2006, roughly, in a lot of parts of the world, 2008 under Obama in the United States. At the time, 2006, 2008, it was regarded more as a terrorist threat because people, there was a concern people would make explosives using nitrates, fertilizer, and so on. There were some major terrorist texts that you did use weapons like that, homemade weapons. Now, that narrative, of course, put the control of fertilizer under the government. The government can then regulate fertilizer. That has now been expanded upon upon the new narrative, which is, first of all, global warming, then climate change. And so it's the same thing continuing under a different banner. Now, in terms of the environmental impact of fertilizer, there are, of course, more sustainable ways to do it. The problem you have is this. If you want to transition from chemical fertilizer directly 
to organic fertilizer, the soil itself needs a transition process to go from, again, being heavily reliant on chemical fertilizer to something that, again, they're not, the plants themselves are not used to. The soil can't handle it. And I know there's people warning that if you switch from one to the next on day one, that, that's like someone with a chemical addiction trying to just you know go cold turkey the next day. They're going to die sometimes. And right, right now, the, what they're doing with the crops and with the soil, if you switch from one to the other on day one and you don't go th through a transition process, which should take several years, not one day, yeah, you're going to have like dust bowl type scenarios. You're going to destroy the soil, you're going to have crop failures, and you're going to have famine. Joshua Phillip, senior investigative journalist with the Epic Times, thank you so much. Hey, pleasure. Thank you. And now, after almost 18 months in office, President Biden will make his first trip to the Middle East this week. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords for his analysis. As long as I can remember, the Middle East has been a place where we send our young men and our young women to bleed. Arya Lightstone was a special envoy for the Abraham Accords, which under former President Donald Trump normalized relations between Israel and other Middle Eastern countries. Lightstone is also the author of Let My People Know, where he shares his firsthand accounts of implementing the Abraham Accord agreements. So basically I had the, the uh, approval of Jared Kushner and, and President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who they said the same exact direction, go big and go fast. So we were able to organize chartered planes from the countries where business people could meet each other. We were able to work out these MOUs, these memorandums of understanding that put in place that today, this year, there were over 275,000 Israeli tourists that went to the United Arab Emirates. It's an incredible number of people that travel there for the first time. He had a message for President Biden ahead of his trip to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know this. That you drove to work this morning, or you were driven to work this morning, I drove to work this morning. It cost me roughly double what it did a year and a half ago. Uh, we are showing up to Saudi Arabia and talking about energy. That meeting is highly different if we show up as an energy independent America. President Biden has the ability to do that in between now and when he gets on the airplane to demonstrate that we as Americans will control our own energy destiny. And if he shows up, the meeting will go significantly differently than if he shows up without unleashing our own power of energy here in the States. He said the second thing Biden should do is call out Iran. There is an enormous amount of belligerence, really bad action, that stems from Iran, whether it's narcotic terrorism or actual terrorism, Hezbollah, Hamas, Lebanon, Yemen, Gaza, where they perpetuate terror all over the world, literally all over the world including within our own borders. And, and the Trump administration understood that. It called it out very specifically, and it targeted it. said, we'll stand with our allies, and we're going to stand against our enemies. Uh, the Biden administration thus far has been far more murky in terms of how much they'll stand with our allies and how far they're going to push back against our enemies. Biden's trip to the Middle East is scheduled for Wednesday, where he will meet with officials in Israel and Saudi Arabia. We reached out to the White House for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, Democrats on a House committee investigating health app companies are concerned that states will use data to prosecute women seeking abortions. A health care attorney tells NTD's Arlene Richards whether he thinks states will act on threats to charge women with a crime. President Biden weighs his options on abortion, saying he's considering declaring a national health emergency to promote abortion access. 
That and more in just a moment. House committee is investigating how reproductive health data is shared by certain apps. They're worried that states will prosecute women seeking abortions. A health care attorney tells NTD's Arlene Richards why states might not prosecute. Health care attorney Harry Nelson doesn't think a House committee investigating data brokers needs to worry about patient information getting exposed. HIPAA uh, prevents people from uh, you, from, from doing anything that would constitute marketing without specific patient consent. The Associated Press reports the committee said a lot of popular health apps don't get consent. They're concerned the data could be used to prosecute women seeking abortions. For example, Idaho and Wisconsin include criminal charges in their abortion laws. Nelson says although some states are threatening, they probably won't prosecute. I think what's more likely to happen is that we're going to see undercover efforts by, uh, by, by activists and by investigators to try to understand what's happening because there's so much of our healthcare system that they can't control where there is uh, very private ways of doctors and patients interacting. But Democrats on the committee aren't taking any chances. Democrats said in letters sent to health app companies, geographic data collected by mobile phones may be used to locate people seeking care at clinics. Nelson said it's not easy to get IP address information to track people down. And I think that this whole conversation about geolocating and geofencing shows how hard it's going to be to actually police what are right now very private interactions. The Hill reports that web searches, smartphone location pings, and online purchases are easy to access with hardly any safeguards. And there are multiple ways the data could travel from people's personal devices to law enforcement or other groups. If states do prosecute abortion, what will the courts do? I think we're going to see some judges really motivated by humanitarian concerns and not enforcing these laws. And I think we will see some judges who ideologically are aligned with these laws. Companies have until July 21st to respond. Meanwhile, abortion rights advocates have filed lawsuits in several states trying to block abortion laws before they start. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And more on abortion news, President Joe Biden says he's considering declaring a national health emergency in response to the Supreme Court's abortion ruling. A health emergency would utilize federal resources to promote abortion access. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. During a bike ride near his home in Delaware Sunday, President Biden said he's limited in what he can do in response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. But as president, I don't have the authority to say that uh, we're going to, you know, state Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. A reporter asked if he's considering declaring a public health emergency. It would free up federal resources to promote abortion access. That's something I'm asked the, uh, the folks, to, the medical people in the administration to look at, whether that is, whether I have the authority to do that and what impact that would have. Last Friday, White House official Jen Klein told reporters that a health emergency doesn't seem like a great option. 
Um, when we looked at the public health emergency, we learned a couple things. One is that it doesn't free very many resources. It's what's in the public health emergency fund, and there's very little uh, money, tens of thousands of dollars in it. So uh, that didn't seem like a great option. Um, and it also doesn't release um, a significant amount of legal authority. And so that's why we haven't taken that action yet. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade affirms that abortion is not a constitutional right. Instead, it's a matter for individual states to decide. Pro-life groups applauded the decision. They consider abortion immoral and tantamount to murder. But pro-abortion groups are pressuring Biden to do something to protect access to abortion. Biden says the White House is looking to address specific issues like women not being able to cross state lines to get abortions and protecting women's private health information. Biden said his ultimate goal is for Congress to pass a bill making abortion legal across the country. He said he'd sign it into law the moment that happens. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade last month has been met with mixed reactions across the country. Over the weekend, one group in Chicago gathered to celebrate the decision while another group held a protest right beside it. Here's the story. This is a glorious day to celebrate life and to celebrate the fact that Roe is gone. Amy Gerke, executive director of Illinois Right to Life, spoke at the March for Life rally held in Chicago's Federal Plaza Saturday afternoon. The event celebrated the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and condemned abortion. While the pro-life rally was taking place on one side of the street, a large group of abortion advocates pledged to fight back on the Supreme Court's ruling. They demanded abortion access in every state. Police formed a bicycle shield to block the pro-abortion crowd from physically disrupting the March for Life rally. 62-year-old Jennifer had an abortion when she was 19, but regretted her decision and has grieved for her unborn child to this day. Abortion destroys more than one life. It destroys generations, all of those generations that would have followed, those who will never be conceived and those who will never be born. I wiped out those generations that would have come after me. I don't think people realize this. Today, Jennifer works as a regional coordinator with the Silent No More Awareness Campaign, an American-based anti-abortion project. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, California's Yosemite National Park on fire. The good news, none of its famous giant sequoias have been destroyed. Tennis great Novak Djokovic is fresh off his fourth straight Wimbledon title. But he won't play in next month's U.S. Open because he's unvaccinated against COVID-19. NTD's Dave Martin asks his medical doctor to weigh in on the associated risks to him. Learn more in just a minute on NTD News. Wildfire is threatening some of the world's oldest giant sequoia trees in California's Yosemite National Park. The blaze expanded fivefold over the weekend. And he's Eileen Eng has the story. 
According to fire officials, the Washburn Fire has scorched nearly 1,600 acres of forest in the southern end of Yosemite near Mariposa Grove. It is home to more than 500 mature giant sequoias. Firefighters are taking special measures to protect the grove. They have been clearing away undergrowth that could potentially fuel the flames and deploying ground-based sprinkler systems to increase humidity levels around the trees. I'm standing right in front of the grizzly giant, which is arguably one of the most famous trees on Earth. And we've got a sprinkler system set up uh, around it. And we're, we're trying to give it some, you know, preventive first aid, really, and, and make sure that uh, when the fire, if the fire comes over here, that this tree is protected. That is to cool flames and to increase the relative humidity and, and decrease the fire behavior around this tree. We really don't want to leave this one to chance because this really is such an iconic tree. About 1,600 people have been evacuated. The Park Service also shut down the southern entrance to the park, which park officials say draws about 4 million visitors a year. Firefighters use offensive firing to speed up the process. So it's all dependent on the situation and the conditions, and really there's many tools and uh, tactics that we utilize, and it's just picking the appropriate one for the right time. And uh, offensive firing is one of those options that gets it down to a pre-established control line. The crews will go up to the actual uncontrolled fire's edge, and they'll start working off of that uncontrolled edge, bringing fire down the slope. The park's best-known attractions, including Yosemite Valley, remain accessible to visitors from its western entrance. But smoke and soot have dimmed views of iconic landmarks. Officials said that the fire has not destroyed any of Yosemite's landmark sequoias, some of which are more than 3,000 years old. Officials say the cause of the blaze remained under investigation. No injuries have been reported. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. And staying in California, many small businesses start in someone's garage. A man tells NTD's David Lamb about his experience as the owner and only employee of his business. Not many businesses opened during the COVID-19 pandemic, but it was the birth of a local automotive window tinting business in San Jose. I feel like a lot of uh, people who want to start businesses, they're very scared. They always doubt themselves. Their family, friends sometimes don't really support them. I feel like um, you need to surround yourself with people who support you, who are willing to push you. And, you know, like just if you doubt yourself, it doesn't hurt if you fail. As long as you fail and you learn from your mistakes, you will be fine. Josh Van is the owner of Rogue Auto Salon in San Jose, California. He says the percentage indicates level of visible light transmission, meaning how much light can go through the tint film. Tinting can protect you from uh, uh, break-ins. It'll help out with uh, security film. So, you know, it'll be a lot harder for them to uh, break into the cars. It'll allow a lot of privacy. But the one thing that not many Californians know is that it actually prevents uh, skin cancer. He is the only employee at his shop. As he said, razor-sharp talent was hard to come by in both California and his industry. I've been trying to find uh, trying to find hires, but it's been really difficult. So usually I'll just have a few of my friends come by and swing by and help me. You have to be very meticulous with this job. So you have to understand how this works, the process, because if you make one minor mistake, you cause the film to have contamination and then your job is, is not good. Fan established his business in 2020 in a residential garage. I've had days where I'm working till four in the morning, trying to troubleshoot everything, figure out what I did wrong, fix things. Um, 
I'm still learning till this day, you know, like I'm always going to be humble. With the support of customers and friends, he was able to lease his first commercial space. Um, I feel like during COVID, uh, a lot of people started focusing more on small businesses. So a lot of people just tried to support small businesses. And, you know, I, yeah, I was surprised that my business started thriving. Compared to others in the window darkening business, Fan says there's no competition or sense of rivalry. The dark shades make for a bright and welcoming industry. As he says, there's always potential customers as new cars are produced annually. He first started specializing in ceramic window tinting and expanded into paint correction and paint protection film as an auto styling specialist. Attention to detail and patience is required in the tinting business. And after Fan honed his craft for two years, he wants to share his passion with others that are eager to learn. My passion is to teach, uh, teach students what I enjoy, what I love. And, you know, I think it'll be a thriving business. Fan plans to open the doors to tenting classes in August. David Lamb, NCD News, California. Now to Twitter, which is expected to formally sue Elon Musk over the terminated takeover deal. Many are predicting an unprecedented legal battle. Who's more likely to prevail? NTD's Colin Fredrickson brings us this story. Elon Musk wants to exit the Twitter deal, and Twitter is suing to make him buy, setting up the two for an unprecedented legal battle. It's a nightmare for Twitter to deal with. Dan Ives is a senior equity research analyst at Wedbush Securities. Ives says it's been a circus show for Twitter since April. Employee turnover, advertising, headwinds, competitive issues, a lot of stakeholders. And there's a company I was getting ready basically to be bought. Now, all of a sudden, it's a standalone public company again. Causes strategic chaos. Musk started pulling out late Friday, saying that Twitter breached multiple provisions in their agreement. Mainly, he says, Twitter isn't being honest about how many accounts are bots or automated accounts that aren't real people. If you're basing your user base and there's a big segment of them that are not real users, the company is actually worth less. Oscar Gomez is managing partner at EPGD Business Law. Gomez says it's going to be difficult to prove how many bots Twitter actually has. Twitter says that fewer than 5% of accounts are bots, while Musk suggests that likely over 20% are bots. Unless Twitter has been engaged in some sort of whole-scale fraud in terms of the extent of uh, user bots, I think there's a very good chance that Musk might lose this litigation. Dominic Romano is the managing attorney at Romano Law, PLLC. Romano believes it's highly unlikely Twitter is hiding the number of bot accounts. Remember, it's a public company. Um, the executives would be in significant legal peril not just on this deal with Musk, but with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Romano says Twitter would also face shareholder lawsuits. At any moment, Twitter may formally file the lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Novak Djokovic beat Australia's Nick Kyrgios yesterday in the Wimbledon finals to claim his fourth straight Wimbledon title and seventh overall at the All England Club. Although Kyrgios served up 30 aces on the day and won the first set, Djokovic was nearly flawless thereafter. With the win, Djokovic is just one behind Rafael Nadal's 22 Grand Slam titles for most all time. But getting number 22 could be tricky. 
Djokovic is unvaccinated against COVID, and that already cost him a shot at winning the Australian Open title in January, a tournament he's won nine times. Next month's U.S. Open presents the same challenge as unvaccinated foreigners aren't allowed into the country. I talked to Dr. Peter McCullough, who is an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist in Dallas. He's authored more than 500 cited works in the National Library of Medicine. Dr. McCullough says the U.S. policy should be dropped. He also points to a 2022 study done by the Journal of American Medical Association that compared COVID tests of students versus student athletes at 12 NCAA institutions. They shouldn't have any more restrictions than the general public would. You know, there was a paper published from NCAA athletes uh, on testing that was done on a routine basis, which the FDA has not cleared, by the way. And the athletes had a lower rate of COVID-19 than the general student population. Dr. McCullough also points out that the 35-year-old Djokovic is not someone he would have concern about should he get the Omicron virus. He also points out that the vaccine has significant adverse effects. The COVID-19 vaccines, all of them in the medical literature, there's over 200 papers, they all cause heart damage. And that's the last thing that an athlete can possibly risk. Heart damage can lead to heart failure or tragically sudden death. He's clearly made the right choice. Uh, and in fact, the vaccine injuries extend beyond the heart. There can be damage to skeletal muscle, the nerves, the brain. Uh, so much of what an elite tennis player is, is at risk when they take a COVID-19 vaccine. The U.S. Open starts on August 29, and absent Djokovic, Nadal will likely be the favorite to win. In baseball, the full rosters for baseball's All-Star Game have been announced, and the first place New York Yankees lead the way with six selections. Top vote-getter Aaron Judge will be joined by teammates Nestor Cortez, Garrett Cole, Clay Holmes, Jose Trevino, and Giancarlo Stanton for the American League. Meanwhile, Shohei Otani, who was voted in by the fans as a starting lineup designated hitter, will also make the team as a pitcher for the second straight season. For the National League, four players from the host team, the Los Angeles Dodgers, will be participating, led by three-time Cy Young Award winner Clayton Kershaw. Meanwhile, the reigning champion Atlanta Braves placed five players on the squad, including the National League's top vote-getter in Ronald Acuna Jr. The All-Star Game takes place in Los Angeles on July 19th. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Tokyo to pay tribute to former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. World leaders are expressing shock and offering condolences in the wake of his assassination last week. And Nord Stream 1, the biggest pipeline carrying Russian gas to Germany, closes for maintenance. But there are fears that it might never reopen. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. This is Lee Smith from Over the Target. I'm here to announce a brand new show. 
available only on Epoch TV, and that's Over the Target Live, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. For an hour each Thursday, starting at 9, we'll be speaking with guests live, and I'll be taking questions from you live as well, touching on all the themes, topics, subjects, and issues that Over the Target is known for, from foreign policy and national security to this, our great American life. I'll look forward to seeing you soon, and I'll look forward to hearing from you soon, too. Thursday nights at 9 for Over the Target Live. I'm Lee Smith. Thanks. World leaders are offering condolences ahead of Shinzo Abe's funeral. The assassination of the former Japanese prime minister stunned the world last Friday. Here are the details. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Tokyo on Monday. On behalf of President Biden, he expressed condolences to the family of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. In his time in office, uh, Prime Minister Abe did more than anyone to elevate the relationship between the United States and Japan to new heights. I shared with the, the Prime Minister uh, letters to the Abe family from President Biden and we simply want them to know that we deeply feel their loss on a personal level as well. Blinken's unscheduled trip to Tokyo followed his G20 foreign ministers meeting in Indonesia. He described Shinzo Abe as a man of a vision who had the ability to realize that vision. Abe was Japan's longest serving modern leader. He was shot and killed last Friday while giving a campaign speech in the western city of Nara. About five and a half hours after the shooting, he was pronounced dead. The White House released a joint statement from President Biden, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, expressing shock at Abe's assassination. Former President Donald Trump told media he is talking to Abe's family about attending the funeral. He said Abe was the first world leader he met with after taking office in 2016. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock also made an official visit to Tokyo. I am visiting Japan today during a very hard time. Last week, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was killed. Before anything, I would like to send my condolences to the people of Japan as a representative of the German government. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen also paid her respects on Monday. At the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association in Taipei, Tsai thanked Abe for being a voice for Taiwan on the international stage. I represent the government and the people in delivering our deepest condolences to the family of former Prime Minister Abe. We also once again express our most severe condemnation towards the criminal act of violence. Former Prime Minister Abe is an international leader that received the utmost respect from all around the world and spent his life safeguarding the values, democracy, freedom and human rights. A hearse carrying Shinzo Abe's remains arrived at Tokyo Zojoji Temple on Monday, ahead of a vigil scheduled on the eve of his funeral. Now to Europe. Nord Stream 1, the biggest single pipeline carrying Russian gas to Germany, has started its annual maintenance. Flows are expected to stop for 10 days, but the government, markets and companies in Germany fear the shutdown might be extended due to the war in Ukraine, and that could disrupt plans to fill storage for winter. Here's NTD's Earl Rhodes with this report. 
The flow of gas from Russia to Germany through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline stopped on Monday as a planned 10-day maintenance period began. The question is, will flows then resume? Germany is in the dark about it. Here's the head of the federal agency in charge of Germany's gas market. What happens once the maintenance is done remains to be seen. No one can predict that. Is the maintenance over in 10 days or earlier or later? Unfortunately, we have to wait and see. Muller made clear gas was still flowing to Germany, thanks to LNG terminals in Belgium and the Netherlands. Europe's largest economy is largely dependent on Russian gas to fuel its export-led economy and to keep homes warm. But the nation has been bracing for a possible complete halt in Russian supplies if Moscow steps up its use of gas as an economic weapon against the West. In that event, storage caverns would not be filled in time for the winter heating season, which is just three months away. Beyond Germany, it would also likely heighten a gas crisis in Europe, which has prompted emergency measures from governments and painfully high bills for consumers. Germany has moved to stage two of a three-tier emergency gas plan, which is one step before the government rations fuel consumption. The Kremlin has dismissed claims that Russia was using oil and gas to exert political pressure, saying the maintenance shutdown was a regular scheduled event and that no one was inventing any repairs. European shares fell on Monday, gripped by investor concerns over an energy supply crunch, and markets are already preparing for the worst. Yes, we can try to reduce gas consumption and to work more efficiently through saving measures, but we know from all estimates that Germany will not be in a position to quickly compensate for the loss of Russian gas. In other words, we need to prepare not just for a slowdown of the economy, but a serious recession. Germany's sectors, likely to be the hardest hit, are its chemical and glass industries. In the grimmest scenario, a complete halt to Russian natural gas exports could cost Germany almost 13% of its economic performance in the second half of 2022. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. And now to Ukraine. The death toll from a Russian rocket attack that hit an apartment block in eastern Ukraine over the weekend rose to 24 today as rescuers combed through the rubble of, in search of survivors. Brick by brick, rescuers picked through a huge round of rubble from a collapsed five-story block. It was struck late on Saturday in Ukraine's Donetsk region. A Reuters video shows rescuers lifting a survivor from the ruins to a stretcher and carrying away the bodies of two people in white bags. The state emergency service says nine people have been rescued so far. Russia is expected to focus the brunt of its assault on eastern Ukraine in the region of Donetsk, after claiming it had captured the neighboring Luhansk region. And after Sri Lanka's president announced his resignation amid mass protests, the country's thoughts are turning to what could happen next. Here's the story. Some lounged on a four-poster bed, others jostled for a turn on the president's gym equipment. A day after it was ransacked, Sri Lankans roamed through the presidential palace on Sunday. Calm has now largely returned to the commercial capital Colombo the day after anger over economic hardship boiled over. Protesters stormed President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's official residence, prompting him to announce his resignation. 
In the grounds of the colonial-era building, human resources manager Namal Jawadin said, the greatest thing the people and youth of this country have ever done is to chase this man away. In contrast to the luxurious surroundings, many Sri Lankans have been struggling to make ends meet. After the global health crisis hammered the tourism-reliant economy, the Indian Ocean island nation has been battered by record inflation, currency depreciation, rolling power cuts and chronic fuel shortages. That boiled over into anger that also saw part of Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe's private residence torched by protesters. Both Wickremesinghe and Rajapaksa were not in the residences when they were attacked. Bhavani Fonseca, a senior researcher at the Centre for Policy Alternatives, said it's not clear what will happen next. So this is going to be an extremely critical time to ensure there's political stability as well as economic stability at a time where there's also a law and order situation erupting. So if violence is not contained, there is concern that this is going to deepen the crisis. So very, very important times ahead for Sri Lanka. The economic crisis is Sri Lanka's worst in seven decades. A severe foreign currency shortage has stalled imports of essentials like fuel, food and medicine. Inflation is escalating. But there are fears that the political crisis could make matters worse. The International Monetary Fund, which has been in talks with the Sri Lankan government for a possible $3 billion bailout, said it was monitoring events closely. Coming up, one of the world's largest outdoor food festivals returns after a pandemic hiatus. We ask visitors how the food is. Over the weekend, the largest outdoor food festival in Illinois finally returned after two years. The annual food fest, Taste of Chicago, brought back a sense of normalcy and festivity to the visitors. Here's the story. Taste of Chicago, or The Taste, returned to Chicago's Grant Park from Friday to Sunday. The Taste attracted tens of thousands of visitors across the country with no shortage of delectable food, refreshing drinks, and live performances. Ross James visits The Taste from Connecticut with his co-worker. Uh, so my friend and I ordered uh, what was the shrimp and chicken crispy wonton, which is absolutely phenomenal. The Taste, well known for its diversity of cuisines, featured 30 food vendors. Besides Chicago's local favorites like Chicago's Doghouse and Connie's Pizza, Asian fusion, such as Soul Taco, was one of the big hits. Steven Rea from a Chicago suburb just tasted Soul Taco. I had the uh, bulgogi uh, taco and they also had the chai uh, spicy chicken skewer. Absolutely delicious. Lamy Cedillo gave a thumbs up for the fire chicken skewer. It just was very flavorful, super yummy. It's like, feels like it's gonna be spicy, but it's not. It's like the perfect amount of spice. Super good. The beer, wine, and cocktails are popular among visitors. Bradford Farrell from South Carolina got his first taste of Chicago's craft beer. Goose Island, we got right over here. Oh, I like it, I do. Matt Martin is with Goose Island Beer Company serving beer at the festival. He's relieved to be back. Outside of the, of the sales that we're doing here, I see a lot of people all around the park carrying 312 cans and hazy beer hug cans. So it's good to see our beer in people's hands again. 
The taste is more than food and drinks. Live music and dance added more fun to the festival. Deborah Jones from Georgia took part in one of the summer dances. I've always wanted to come to Chicago and I've always wanted to do line dancing, so check, check. But I'm so happy I did the line dancing. Alyssa Biaggi from Chicago is not new to the taste. It's really fun, there's great food, there's so many different choices. It's a great mix of people here and great music. This year's tightened security measures with metal detectors, bag checks, and police patrol played a critical role in the safety and success of the event. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.